The couple arrived late on a Sunday afternoon in what would have been in the childhood days of my father and his father before him, early spring, but was in those parts, from that time on until the end of days, one long year of invincible summer. They pulled up out the front of the general store in a taxi with southern plates, towing a trailer with an upright piano there in it. The piano gagged with foam, roped down like it had been kidnapped. Only the man got out of the taxi. He checked the tightness of the rope, checked the piano for scratches, dust, patted it like he would the head of an obedient child. Like most from down south, he had trouble moving gracefully through the rainbow-coloured fly-strip door, blue and red ribbons tangling up in his ears. He swatted the strips away like they were blowflies. In that endless summer, there were a few things that he did not parch from my memory, but this was one, those large, listening ears, confused by the tongue-lashing of the fly-strips. The other was his hands, fingers as long and slender as the arms of a starfish, though frightened somehow into a knuckle grip around a square of paper, a list of things, groceries and the like, which he unfolded under the flat of the counter. Only later, much later, did I notice the sadness that was about to change the shape of his eyes. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Sydney author Craig Ensor reading from his debut novel, The Warming. It's 200 years into the future and Finch is a 15-year-old boy living in a near-deserted coastal town on the south coast of New South Wales. Cities like Brisbane and Sydney have been laid to waste by temperatures cracking 50 and rising seawater. Most of the world's dwindling population has migrated towards the Earth's poles. Finch must eventually follow the Great Migration south, but for now he lives a quiet existence with his father, until a husband and wife move into a house further down the beach, bringing with them a piano and plenty of secrets. Craig is here with me to chat about the warming. Hey Craig, how are you? Very good. It feels sort of ironic that we're talking about the warming today, because it feels like winter has finally snapped. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a very warm May until today. It really has. I went for a swim last week, and that's like the definition of guilty pleasure, like swimming in the ocean in late autumn and not shivering. (laughs) I was like, this is beautiful, but it should not be like this. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So um, you're a lawyer, right? Yes. What led you to pursue a career in law? I think it was a friend's suggestion. I'd done an arts degree, and I was on a a gap year, and a, a friend suggested I might be good at it. Um, so I did a, a graduate law degree and found out that I turned out to be okay at it. And, and from there I kept going for the last 20 years. Yeah. Fantastic. And what area of the law do you work in now? So I'm in, uh, commercial banking, uh, litigation disputes and insolvency. Okay. And so among all the litigation, where did this creative writing side come through? Well, it's... It's always been a, a passion of mine that I've sort of dipped into on, on weekends and whenever I get a spare moment, uh, and it's stayed with me. It's a it's an itch I, I just can't scratch. So uh, so for 20, 25 years, I've just been chipping away at it on the weekends and when I can as a hobby, really, and never giving up. And uh, except for this one, I decided about a year or 18 months ago to send it out to a few publishers and I was lucky enough to get one hit. Yeah, fantastic. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so before the warming, was it just sort of short stories and stuff like that? 
yeah, just the odd the odd short story and um, and just sort of dabbling at other projects uh, over time. Yeah. Was this the first novel that you really tried to go for and finish? Yeah, this is the one that I've, I've taken all the way to completion through an editorial process and structural and edit and copy edit. Uh, there have been other um, novels that I've had a crack at in the past that haven't got to that level. Yeah. So they're, they're in the bottom of the drawer. Yeah. Well, every good writer has a couple of those manuscripts at the bottom of the drawer that might never see the light of day, but you never yeah. know. That's right. They all, they all contributed in one way to this in, in hopefully improving me over time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you did that arts degree, did you do any writing through that? Uh, yeah, bits and pieces. I did a, a double major in English and philosophy, so I picked up my sort of love of literature through that, that, that degree and, uh, and I've kept it ever since. What um, particular writers or books did you sort of come across during that degree? Uh, the modernists mainly. I'd, uh, y- you start on an English degree with Chaucer and it's, it's all a bit old and boring and I sort of fast-forwarded through... To, to Joyce and Kafka and Proust and and uh, and the modernists because they for me that was that was the exciting part that's where formal innovation experimentation was happening and I wanted to read those I wanted to get to get to the end quickly straight to the good stuff <laughs> straight yeah. to the good stuff yeah. <laughs> um, so well tell me about the warming and how the idea for the novel came to you well it's uh, it came as I think it actually grew out of a trip I took to Tasmania with my wife in late 2013 where we she was um, pregnant at the time and um, I had this story sort of floating around in my head of, uh, of, a, of a couple who have, were seeking sort of refuge from a secret by going to a beach house and removing themselves from the world entirely and all the technology and other distractions that go with it to trying to get away from the world and start again. Um, so that that was the germ of the idea, um, but the I think the trip to Tasmania at the time um, and the fact that my wife was pregnant introduced a larger set of themes to it, um, the importance of of children um, and also Tasmania as a backdrop to the setting, because um, the second part of the novel shifts from from a beach house south of Sydney down to Tasmania as they take the migration south to avoid the the temperatures, the high temperatures, yeah. Yeah, so it was sort of more the situation the characters were in and then came the sort of climate stuff to sort of push the plot forward, I guess? Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, it, it started off as uh, as an idea of, a, of the couple going away to, to remove themselves from society and, and technology, but the, the climate stuff and the larger story sort of fed its way in. It almost wrote itself in the process. Um, it was, it was always set in the future. It was always extremely hot. Um, but the idea of following the trend south to Tasmania and then on to Antarctica and Mawson and taking that idea to its completion sort of grew out of the, the story itself. I didn't start with that as a, as an end product. It came out of the story at almost like it, it wanted to be told and insisted on being told. Yeah, that's so interesting because that whole warming side of the the story is so important Mm. to it. Um, But yeah, in the novel, you imagine an Australia really warped by rising season temperatures. Um, I mean, even a place that's 
as relatively south as Sydney is pretty deserted in the sort of future that you imagine in the novel. Do you recall when climate change sort of entered your consciousness and when you started realising that, or I guess being aware that we might be heading towards a future that is unviable because of climate change? I think it's always been in the back of my mind. I'm always sort of acutely aware of the weather and the weather weather changes and um and uh you know i'd i'd read tim flannery's book i'd seen al gore's uh, documentary uh, i was yeah conscious of it um and it was somewhere in my subconscious and it as i said it just sort of worked its way into the text and needed to be told and the the way it sort of evolved was um something that probably took me surprise more than anything else in the sense that it was um it, it was almost a story that, as I said, demanded to be told or wanted to be told. Mm. And it's strange to say that, but you, you'd think that um, uh, that I, I don't have that level of control over my material, but um, that's the way writing works in many ways. I don't, uh, I'm not a planner. I'd start and I work uh, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, and the story grows from there. Yeah. Um, one of the things, because obviously uh, Finch is our main character that we're going along with, and um, one of the things that comes out about his character is this like, connection to nature and mm. him exploring the rock pools that he has names for and the wonder that he discovers in each of those little rock pools. I was wondering, is that reflective of your own childhood? Did you spend a childhood on the coast? Well, I, I grew up in Sutherland Shire, which uh, is, is, when I think back at it, the time, it's almost semi-rural in the sense that... I lived in a suburban house, but there was a creek that about 100 metres away that I spent a lot of time in as a, as a kid. And then we moved again near a golf course where there was creeks and I'd spend time looking for golf balls and catching fish and stuff. Um, so even though we were in Sydney, uh, it still had that sort of rural aspect and uh, there was a connection to na- nature there that I had during my childhood. So I spent a lot of time looking at, through rock pools or creeks and um, and that that sort of, that joy of... Of, of childhood, of seeing things and finding things, discovering them for the first time, is you know one of life's first great joys, and I, I was trying to recapture that in, in Finch at, as a fifteen-year-old. But while he's at, at the same time, at the age of fifteen, his his interests are shifting from the more childhood interests of looking at rock pools to the more serious interests of falling in love with an older woman. It's, it's, it's a very sort of formative age, that age. When I think of cli-fi or climate fiction, that genre, you know, I sort of equate it with the more sci-fi genre, I guess. Yes. You know, and there's a lot of books that imagine these worlds that are really super different to the one that we're living in now mm. um, with these crazy technological, you know, advances. There's a couple of books out at the moment, you know, about walls and cities, you know, erecting big walls around them, which is obviously influenced by a certain political person mm. um, across the sea. Mm-hmm. But um, what I loved about the warming is that the world, especially that first half of the book where you spend mm. that you spend with Finch by the sea, is it's not too unrecognisable from the world that we have now. And I think that's what sort of made it a little bit more scary because it feels very real and very possible, Mm. but it's still in a world that is vastly different to the one that we're living in. Is that sort of what you were going for? Yeah. Well, for me, I don't think things change that radically and certainly in country areas, they don't change that radically. In that, in... 
in 200 years' time, particularly with an apocalypse, if you're going to talk, talk about the warming in this book as an apocalypse, it's a slow-moving one. So people, um, uh, it's easy for them to deny it away and adapt and, and, and stick to their knitting for a, for a relatively long period of time. It's not like nuclear war where you instantly need to change the way you live and thrown into warfare and cannibalism, etc. This is, it, it, it almost has a utopian edge in the sense that life continues to go on and there's technological improvements, but at the same time, the planet is dying. It's a strange paradox. And that, I thought that's how, if the world was going to, to die out as a result of the warming, that's how it would happen in a slow-moving, civilised way where it would feel not so much different to today. And I also thought that um, it would, people, pretty much your reaction, people reading the book would see themselves in the book and be able to engage with it and then ask themselves the question, why why hasn't anyone done anything about it? They're just sitting back waiting for it to um, evolve and it, their only really um, revolt is to move yeah. uh, from from country to country or, or further south or further north to beat the heat. Yeah. It's, it's a fairly passive reaction to a, a pretty a life-threatening problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it definitely rings true because I heard recently that by 2050, climatologists are predicting that Sydney would have taken on the sort of subtropical climate of Brisbane, mm. and a city like Melbourne will be more like Dubbo. So, yeah, yeah, that sort of, you know, the expansion of the tropics and that unlivable heat and people being moved south certainly feels very realistic. Yeah. 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 Um, did you do any research to sort of help you imagine that scenario? Uh, no, I, I didn't do uh, too much research. It was just... Um really just looking at the trend, the trends and, and taking it to a, to the end point. I mean, it's speculative fiction and hopefully it stays a speculative fiction. Yeah, let's but, hope. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's interesting, though, that after the fact, after I'd written it, I actually did research and, and saw that the idea, these types of ideas are not, I wasn't the first to think about it. Uh, I think others have thought about um, the ultimate result being moving to the, to the poles or just following the, the cool the coolness, but, um, no, that was, that was pretty much, pretty much it. Yeah. It's interesting as well that, uh, when you were talking before about how the initial idea for the book came to you, that your wife was pregnant because this book is obviously about having children and the capacity Mm. to have children and the will to have children. And, um, there's a moment in the warming, I think early on where Finch's father mentions to, uh, something about Finch having kids of his own. And that sort of Mm. freaks Finch out Mm. because A, he's 15. And I think any 15 year old (laughs) is going to freak out at the proposition of having children. Um, but also because they're in this world where the future is so uncertain. And it's funny because that sort of conversation is happening now. Like there's surveys going out and I think there was one that came out from the Australian Conservation Foundation um, a few months ago that said one in every three women under 30 are reconsidering having kids because of climate change. Mm. Um, does that surprise you, that sort of st- statistic? Oh, I, I am surprised by that now. Um, it, it was a very difficult thing to imagine and uh, a world that had got to a point where people were opting out of having children not for lifestyle reasons, but just for the reason that they didn't want to bring a child into a world that that child may not survive it. That that was a very difficult thing to imagine, and I don't, I don't know whether I fully imagined it. Um, but 
to, to hear about that starting to happen now is is pretty horrifying. Mm. Um, but it is um, it is a major part of the book in the sense that what um, once you suspend disbelief that this may well happen and uh, in in two hundred years time we could be at a point where the the world's coming to an end. Uh, it raises a whole bunch of those questions. Um, not only the question of whether to create life, but a more another difficult question: whether you stay in it. Um, uh, you know, if 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 there's no purpose beyond yourself. Um, so they're really difficult questions that are raised. Um, that the book really just um, touches on, I think, but. It's probably enough. Yeah, well, <laughs> you don't no. Want to go too deep in it. Yeah, well, no, they are fascinating questions, though, because it's interesting to imagine a scenario where, you know, I guess, you know, having kids and reproducing is something that is like integral socially to society and something that is socially encouraged and also biologically programmed. So yes. to imagine a sort of scenario where people are not doing that anymore is very scary and very interesting. Yeah, well, that's, um, I think, um, during the editorial process, that idea. Uh, we talked about that and uh, I I think I said at the time, well, the worst case scenario, if you imagined everyone in the world deciding not to have children, then in a hundred years' time, the whole world would be extinct. I yeah. mean, it would only take that, that sort of decision. So it can, an apocalypse of this nature can happen very quickly without disease or warfare or anything of that nature. It's a, it, it can happen with a whimper, not a bang. Yeah, and that's that's I guess the scary part of this type of speculative story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the couple that move into this beach house uh, near where Finch lives bring a piano with them, and the man spends basically all his time playing the piano and composing a piece of music <laughs> for his wife April. That piano and that piece of music become really important for Finch. Where did this musical thread of the story come from? Uh, well, I. I, I love music myself. Um, I've always wanted to play the piano. Um, I can't. I can't play any instrument. All the musical parts are made up. Oh, really? <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, yeah. That that bit was researched to some extent. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wanted to have that musical part and I thought that the it created an interesting tension between... Uh, the couple that were trying to get away from technology to restart their lives after a, a, a tragedy that happened in the past, but they do take the piano with them, which is a form of technology, even though it doesn't rely on electricity. And it's the piano in many ways that gets in between them because he is he's devoted, this is the character William Spear, is devoted to April, but he's, he's also devoted to music and composing. And it's the... The composition that he's he's bent on writing for her for April forever that drives a, a wedge between them that Finch ultimately kind of steps into as a fifteen year old. Uh, so it, it's it's an interesting sort of paradox there that or irony that um, that it's it's music that that ultimately brings them undone. Yeah, and as you say, um, Finch sort of steps in and he's quite infatuated with April. Um, and the book is very much sort of, I guess, about their relationship in many ways. Um, why does the story centre on Finch and April and their relationship? Like, what about that dynamic between them was interesting to you? 
I think it's it's probably more from Finch's perspective in the sense that it, it was his first his first love that um, in falling in in love with her, and he he never really got over her um, after she left the beach house after Spear and and and, um, and April broke up, um, and then. But there was a connection that they built. Uh, from her perspective, I think it was because the relationship she had with Spear was breaking down. And she was younger than him. She was 20, 22 and Finch is 15. So she was still partially a child as well. And she just wanted to get um, get away from the seriousness. And she found solace in, in sort of the games and the, the things, the adventures that she did with, with Finch as a child. Um, and build a bond with him um, through that process. And then uh, obviously there was something that was was built at that point, wasn't finally uh, consummated in any way other than a kiss until they get to university and they're ready to take it further from that point on. So very much a coming of age story as well, I guess. Do you look at it th- that way? Yeah, I think so. When you, when you look at the book, it's really, it's it's, told as a memoir from the future. It's a 76-year-old man looking back on his life from the time that he was 15 when he first met April all the way through until he's 76. And um, But the first third of it is, is, is a coming-of-age story. Um, and then it moves to different phases of their lives. Yeah. Um, and he's telling this 76-year-old, Finch is telling it from Mawson, right, mm. on Antarctica. Yeah. Um, why did you choose to have him tell it as an old man looking back on his life? Uh, I, I wanted to. I wanted to do it in the first person, but give it the the tone of a of a, a memoir, like a almost like a melancholic, elegiac type tone to it, um, so that uh, it would add more texture to it. So it has a, a double perspective. It's when he's looking back, he's looking back through the eyes of an old man, but then he's also looking back through the eyes of a 15-year-old. So it, it gives that extra layer of sort of complexity and meaning to it. Yeah. Um, you use the word melancholic there, and I know also we've talked a lot about doom and gloom, but I don't want to scare people off because your writing is so beautiful to the point of delight as well. So oh, thank you. I don't want people to be scared off because <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. Um, are there any writers you look up to or are inspired by in that regard in terms of the style of your actual writing uh well i've got, i've gone through many phases through my life um of, uh, in terms of i started off raymond carver was was a cormac mccarthy um i got stuck on the seas could see her. <laughs> um but then um yeah and I, but it, it took me a while to sort of develop um, develop my own style. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of um, the work I did in the past were just imitations of those authors, um, and it took a long time to get to a voice that 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 I was sort of comfortable that came through me very easily. Yeah. Um, so there's there's probably uh, um, uh, you know, hints of many different authors throughout the book, 
a number of different voices that mm. may be heard, but not one single one, I, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that from a lot of authors, actually. Like, they learn to write sort of through imitation and then eventually, like, your own voice emerges and then there's no going back from there. Like, <laughs> you found it, right? Yeah. Yeah. What does your bookshelf look like? Do you read a lot in this sort of speculative fiction genre or do you go for sort of other other genres as well? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's generally sort of literary fiction, um, historical, lots of Penguin classics. So I don't read much in speculative fiction at all mm. space. Um, not a lot of science fiction either, although I've, I've read um, Delilah's Zero K. That's probably the most recent one. So the... But I'm quite open to pursuing any genre to, to fit the story. Um, and the, the quality of the work is, stays the same. Um, so I'm quite open to write a, a mystery story, ghost story, thriller, doesn't matter. Um, they, as long as they, they have depth and raise interesting questions that's, that interests me, that's what matters. Yeah, fantastic. Um, can you give us any recommendations of books that you've read recently that impressed you? Oh, that's a hard question. I know. Everyone always <laughs> hates this one. It's a curly I t- one. I, I t- <laughs> one. One book I did read um, was in the speculative fiction terrain, um, was Station Eleven by Emily St. John, St. John Mandel, which was um, about uh, a Georgian flu um, killing off 99% of the population. Uh, and then a story about a, a travelling troupe who were playing Shakespeare's plays 20 years later in a world sort of that had been deprived of technology, um, people, you know, planes, electricity, everything, everything you take for granted. Um, and that was that was really really well written, good book. A little bit different to mine in the sense that because there was this massive apocalyptic event that 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 was sudden. Uh, it threw everything out so that there was war, there was death, there was disease, um, um, perhaps even cannibalism, I can't remember, but um, wow. but it, it's a lot darker world than my world. Um, my, the world in the warming is still very, very civilised. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's a, it's a, as I say in the book, it's it's kind of a late flowering leading towards the, towards the, hopefully the ultimate end, which may be avoided um, through technology, through the arcs that are being built during the latter half of the book and where most people put, or many people put hope, well, life will continue or humanity will continue on these great, great arcs that are floating around the oceans. Yeah. Has writing this book and imagining all of that changed the way that you think about the climate change debate that we're having now? Yeah, so it's 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 um, it's made me a lot more um, uh, yeah sensitive and and aware of the, the acuteness of the, the problem, um, and you know having to grapple with some of the issues that that come out of an end game um, warming scenario where. You know, we plough through three, four, five degrees increase in temperature and worse. Um, having to think of some of those issues scares scares me, and uh, and certainly makes me more um, more concerned and more uh, about trying to do whatever I can to avert the problem. Yeah, 
I've been reading some articles lately about how the role of the financial sector and the um, insurance industry will come to the forefront of sort of like the fight against dealing with climate change, I guess, because it's like, how do you have a successful business when we've got such an uncertain future? And Mm. how do you insure now um, without taking climate change into account? Well, there's a whole whole bunch of new new technologies that are... um uh, that are going to give rise to new businesses and that'll need financing and um, a whole new economy that will probably grow out of it. Yeah. Um, rather than the old old economy. So, um, uh, yeah, we, we, humans are very good at adapting and evolving. It's just a question of adapting and evolving the right way. Yeah. Um, for long term sustainability, I guess. Would you say that at its core, the warming is a hopeful book? I. I think it is a hopeful book um, because it, there's certainly a tension. There's a wrestle throughout between hope and and uh, and despair, um, often seen as denial also in the book. And that's re- even in Finch himself, he starts to, notwithstanding that he is much more enlightened than his father, is starts to sound like his father at certain points and become sound conservative in his thinking. But at the end of it, I think he, he realises that um, obviously family is the most important thing and he needs to do whatever he can to keep his family together. And if that means moving to the arcs um, then for survival, then that must happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think ultimately is a, it is a hopeful book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've tantalized people enough. And um, as I said, this is such a beautiful, fascinating book and I hope heaps of people read it. And it's been so lovely to have you in to chat to you, Craig. Thank you so much. Thanks, Angus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Warming by Craig Ensor is published by Impact Press. It's out now at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.